Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. van plowing into a group of people in Las Ramblas area by the Plaza Catalunya. We know there was a white van with blue writing that, that really plowed into this group of people. Police say the driver jumped the curb, crashing his van into pedestrians there before jumping out of the vehicle and running away. At least one person killed, 32 injured in that attack, and that police are now calling a terrorist incident. There was a really loud kind of kind of crushing noise, but I mean, I, I didn't stop to, to look back. Um, there's just a kind of immediate stampede in the opposite direction, uh, down all the kind of narrow streets that are uh, by Las Rambla. You could see the fear and the distress on these people and the fact that they were screaming in terror. You know, regardless of what might have happened, we knew we had to get ourselves out of there. Um, I saw a woman next to me screaming for our kids. Police were very, very quickly there. Um, police officers with guns, vans everywhere, and then the whole street started getting pushed back. You'd see like chaos at the top, like just cars, etc. Terror in Barcelona. Buck Saxon here with you all now. Thank you very much for joining another one of these incidents, these horrific events where uh, we know so much about what the facts are likely to be before they even come out based upon the patterns we have seen in the past. You have in this latest terror attack, 13 dead, 100 Wounded and the number of wounded could add to the number of dead soon because some of the injuries are described as severe. Amak, the uh, Al Qaeda, uh, the uh, Al Qaeda w- website that puts out, I'm sorry, ISIS website that puts out claims of responsibility, um, has said that this is a an ISIS attack. There has been a claim of responsibility, whether it's just people inspired by ISIS or acting at the direction of ISIS, we uh, do not yet know. Uh, We will find out more in the hours and days ahead. So the target, and and as soon as I saw the initial news reports breaking earlier this morning, I I could have written the rest of what the day was going to be like, because we've seen this so many times. Uh, The target was Las Ramblas uh, district in Barcelona. It's a, an, a wide boulevard, lots of pedestrian foot traffic. It's exactly what the Islamic State wants its so-called soldiers, its uh, mujahideen, its holy warriors, to target. Use a large vehicle. In this case, it was a large van. Get it up to the highest speed you can and then mow down as many pedestrians as you possibly can. Uh, this is similar to what we have seen in Nice, France, back in July of 2016, where 86 people were killed. It's similar to attacks in London, in Berlin, in Sweden, 
uh, in Stockholm. This is the current phase of jihadist terrorism, vehicular attacks, because they have been able to create mass casualty events with this in the past. There is a repetitiveness to this. You see, in years previous to this, you would see terrorists try to get their hands on explosive material and build a big explosion. And uh, they would oftentimes get caught in the process of discussing the explosive material or trying to procure that material, or they would fail in the technical skills necessary to create a an explosive device that detonates on command or on a timer as they wanted to. And so we've been very lucky in many incidents where there were not uh, any casualties, in fact, because either the attack was prevented or the terrorists were so inept in their murderous mayhem that nobody was even injured or wounded. Uh, you had mere blocks from where I was when it detonated an IED go off in Chelsea's neighborhood of Manhattan here in New York City. Uh, th there have been so many of these incidents where it could have been so much worse. In fact, based on the difficulty involved, in a sense, you think, well, it should have been so much worse, except we got lucky. Today, we ran out of luck. Our Spanish brothers and sisters, our European allies, uh, the Western world, the civilized world, we, we ran out of luck. And we have uh, over a dozen killed and, and many, many scores more uh, grievously wounded. People on the scene uh, terrified as a result of what happened. Even those who escaped physical wounds, many of them will have... Uh, P uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder after this, and uh, it unsettles the entire city of Barcelona, all of Spain, and all, all of the civilized world, as I said. There's nothing satisfying in terms of the analysis when you come out of an incident like this. There's nothing, there, there are no real takeaways uh, to solve this problem, to make it go away, especially when you're looking at an attack like this, uh, where it's low tech, no skill, uh, it is just the mindset. It is the ideology. If you have an individual who is radicalized in a free society or quite honestly in any society, not even, you know, not even the authoritarians of North Korea, uh, not even the Iranians will be able to prevent one of their own people from doing this. Getting into a vehicle and mowing people down doesn't matter how statist a society is. We could do everything in our power. We could mic up everyone. We could surveil every person in the country. Theoretically, it's not possible, but. And it would still be possible to do this. It is about the ideas. It's the embrace of jihadism. It's a narrative. We talk here often about how I said to you yesterday, news is a narrative. Jihadism is a narrative. And at the center of that narrative is that there is only one true faith. That faith is Islam. Those who are the real Muslims, the true believers, must take it upon themselves to attack non-believers, including fellow Muslims who do not subscribe to this pure form of Islam. And they must take the fight to their enemies. They must spread uh, jihadism. They must spread the caliphate. And while it doesn't look to any of us like this will happen 
in the near term, there's a reason why they chose Spain. I was over at Fox News for a number of uh, of hits earlier today, and and uh, our friend Sean Hannity was kind enough to have me on his radio show to uh, lend a little analysis on this issue because I, as those of you listening, hopefully know, or maybe you're just learning for the first time, I'm a former CIA CTC analyst. So uh, I also worked at the NYPD Intelligence Division for Counterterrorism for a number of years. Um, and those of you who are wondering how long, I guess it was from 2005 until 2011. This is what I did all day, all the time. Think about this, study it, learn it, work to assist the warfighter, work to assist intel and law enforcement to stop exactly these kinds of attacks. So this was my professional background for uh, for a, a chunk of time before I came into media. And yes, as, as an analyst, this is what I did. I sat around and thought about it and worked with uh, investigators, door kickers, warfighters to go after the bad guys. Um, and as I look at this now and having spent countless hours reading through threat assessment reports and understanding the history and ideology of different terrorist groups, I can say that Spain is very high up in the hierarchy of target sets in the jihadist mind because of what is now often a forgotten history, a history that is not taught, but one that I'll talk to you a bit now. And that has to do with the Islamic conquest, which remember, jihadism is not is neither offensive nor defensive. It is just holy war. People talk about defensive and offensive jihad, but it can be both. It has been both. And in the case of Spain, the Islamic conquest lasted there for centuries. They called it Al-Andalus. There was uh, the Caliphate of Cordoba. It was for centuries one of the most, in fact, at one point, probably the wealthiest and most important part of the Islamic empire. We also don't often talk about Islam as an empire, but that's exactly what it is. The jihadists are trying to reconstitute what is a form of Islamic colonialism. They want to retake territory that they took via force of arms. And with Spain, they call it Al-Andalus. In fact, the Straits of Gibraltar are named for an Islamic general who crossed as part of the conquest. And when you look at Andal people refer to it as Andalusia or Al-Andalus, uh, it wasn't until 1492 uh, that you had with famously, for those of you who know the movie, El Cid, uh, you had the Spanish Reconquista. Now, in this country, people refer to the Reconquista sometimes as, as something else, but the Reconquista, which took quite a long time, and the final expulsion of uh, Islamic forces from Spain. And then you had a period of time where there were continued insurgencies from what they called the Moriscos. And the Moriscos were people who were either of mixed Spanish and Moorish heritage. They referred to the Muslims in Spain as the Moors. Um, and this also then led to a series of counterinsurgencies, which we don't often think of it in those terms, but that's what it was, including under uh, some of the major European dynasties that controlled Spain. There were concerns that those Moriscos, those Moors who had stayed behind, uh, would in fact 
assist with the invasion of Spain that would come after 1492, after the Reconquista. But this is all to say that the furthest, in terms of held territory, the furthest that the Islamic conquest ever got in Europe was Spain, was in was the was control of the Iberian Peninsula, Al Andalus, Al Andal or Andalusia. Uh, that's the furthest that they ever got. Yes, they were turned back in Eastern Europe, notably a number of times the Ottoman forces were turned back at Vienna, and the the Islamic conquest got as far as France, and then were turned back by Charles Martel, the hammer. This isn't taught in schools anymore. People don't learn about this, or if they do, it's one line, it's a footnote. But to the jihadist mindset, that was the high watermark. That was the period of greatest expansionism of the caliphate, and they were right at, not just at Europe's doorstep, they had Europe by the throat. You may think, Buck, what does this have to do with anything today? The jihadists are people who hearken back to a period of time of the Islamic conquest. They have a different view entirely of history than we do. So to strike at Spain, even though it's not going to topple the government, it's just going to murder a bunch of innocent people on the streets. But in their mindset, this is retribution for the expulsion of Muslims from what they will always believe now is Muslim land. The fact that it was Christian, the Muslims took it and then they lost it, does not factor into their thinking. They view this as a blow against the Christian infidels for the caliphate. And then there are some additional contemporary reasons uh, having to do with Spain and its role in NATO and the Middle East, which I'll get into in a moment here. But this is what we have seen today. It was a jihadist strike against a European ally and friend in some at some level in some part. Because of what happened in the 15th century. So remember that. And when we try to talk about how to stop how to stop Islamism and jihadism, understand that they view what happened at different points in history that are not even thought of, not even remembered, not known in America as influencing geopolitics today. Jihadists will talk about the Balfour, a Balfour Declaration in Palestine today. They will talk about the Sykes-Picot Treaty dividing the Near East between the French and the British today. And they will discuss the loss of Al-Andalus, Andalusia today as it affects their plans of conquest. So uh, I'll get into this. Also, we have Trump's tweet about something in the Philippines. I'll give you some backstory on that. Continued fight over the monuments. Definitely need to spend some time on that. What are your thoughts, my friends, on what's happened today, today's events? Anything else on your mind? 844-900-BUCK. 844-900-2825. Uh, Barcelona and our entire Mission Spain team are currently assisting Americans in Spain who are affected by these events. We ask U.S. citizens in the area to let your loved ones know you are safe. Terrorists around the world should know the United States and our allies are resolved to find you and bring you to justice. Trump administration not mincing words. There you have Secretary of State Rex Tillerson saying that uh, we stand in uh, 
we stand alongside our allies and we grieve with the people of Spain and we will continue to take the fight to the terrorists, to Islamic jihadists, wherever, which I suppose is repetitive, but uh, wherever they are. Um, and if they're within our cities or if they're overseas, we will find them. And if they pose a threat to us, we will take them out. That is the way this is going to be. Um, I just want to give you a little bit of a show roadmap here because I, I know I say this a lot, but it really is true because I have time to prepare a show that is, well, really prepared. It's not just me sitting here like, yeah, I saw a headline in R2. I, I seek every day to make sure that the people that listen to this show, Team Buck, my uh, wonderful audience, my collection of friends and patriots that listen every day, uh, that they are um, going to come away from the show knowing things that they did not know before and that you will learn more, especially on days like today, from listening to this show than, in my, in my opinion, any other show that you will hear. Uh, this is what I did. This is my background. Not only am I an amateur, uh, well, I shouldn't say an amateur historian because I haven't written any histories, but I have a love of history, but also have real counterterrorism operations analysis background. Uh, so, but as a roadmap for the rest of the show, and I can see we got lines lit up all over the place. We will also get to some calls. I'm going to talk, talk to you a bit about the media reaction to much of what uh, has gone on in the last 24 hours and, well, what's gone in the last few hours, I should say, about this terrorist attack. We will get into the monuments debate because you'll notice that there there is this hesitation among the mainstream media to go too far into focusing on a mass casualty terrorist attack by jihadists in a European city because they really still want to talk about Charlottesville. Because they really still want to talk about Trump and how he didn't respond properly. And they want to have this fight over pulling down Confederate monuments. And I want to share with you my thoughts on that. Uh, so we will get into that topic. If you have, if you want to talk to me about that, by the way, 844-900-BUCK. Especially a lot of you I know live in the South. What do you think? Do you want these monuments to come down? Which ones and how and what? 844-900-BUCK. Third hour, we're going to be spending on free speech and how they're trying to change not just the laws are not just private institutions and how they operate in this, but also the laws on this. So a lot of show coming. Sponsor this hour is uh, Boland Branch. Look, for some people, falling asleep can be as hard as the workday that they just put in, but it doesn't have to be that way. You don't need to spend a fortune to get the rest you need. Great sleep starts with the right sheets. And they're more affordable than you think. That's what you get with Bowl and Branch. What makes Bowl and Branch unique is each sheet is crafted from 100% organic cotton. They feel incredible. I'm telling you, try these out. They're like no other sheets you've ever touched. They get softer over time. The more you wash them, the better these sheets will feel. And they last for years, so it's a fantastic investment to go out and get these. And since Bowling Branch sells exclusively online, you're not going to pay that expensive retail markup. That's half the price for twice the quality. You'll love these sheets. Try them for 30 nights and see for yourself. If you're not impressed, return them for a full refund. I'm telling you, anyone on Bowling Branch sheets loves them. Go to BowlingBranch.com today. You'll get $50 off your first set of sheets plus free shipping when you go to BowlingBranch.com and use promo code BUCK, B-U-C-K. That's $50 off plus free shipping right now at bowlandbranch.com spelled b-o-l-l and branch.com promo code buck bowlandbranch.com promo code buck um so we will get there uh, oh sorry going back to the show for a second here um we will get into the media response because 
Look, you can't make this stuff up, folks. You got mainstream media, people who are supposed experts or top-tier journalists who are like, well, this thing in Barcelona, let's tie this somehow to Charlottesville. Because because they're because they're related somehow, right? That that's it, it's it's crazy, but it's out there, and this is how they discuss it. We'll get into that. Stay with me. The final point I would make, Wolf, is just is just this note: it, it, in light of the the uproar of the last several days, five days apart, you have a white supremacists in Charlottesville use a vehicle to kill, and here you have attackers at least following the modus operandi. Uh, terrorists using vehicles uh, apparently to kill as well. And, and, and that sh- the, the, those shared tactics, uh, th- it should be alarming. And then senior national security correspondent Jim Shudo, whom I know and used to work with, suggesting that ISIS is, you know, getting its tactics from white supremacists in Charlottesville now. This This passes for... Uh, analysis over at CNN. Um, wow. Days like today, they could really use me, but quite honestly, they wouldn't want to because can't handle the truth. Um, here's what uh, Wolf Blitzer then went on to say about this. For- yeah, and there will be questions about copycats. There will be questions if uh, what happened uh, in Barcelona uh, was at all, at all, uh, a copycat version of what happened in Charlottesville. Yeah, lots of questions about that one, Wolf. Amazing. I mean, you know, they're they're paying this guy in in the seven figures to say things that you know a lot of you are. are I can hear you slapping your forehead across the country, being like, "What?" Yeah, I know. Uh, where does this level of of inane stupidity come from? Uh, let me first just give you a little list. It could be. You you could make the conclusion. You could draw the conclusion that this attack in Barcelona, 13 dead, scores more wounded, people uh, broken with broken bones, shattered hips, shattered femurs. I mean, you know, head injuries. Who knows? Some of them may never walk again. Severe injuries, including in addition to those who were killed. In Charlottesville, you had a guy run his car into a bunch of protesters in the middle of a riot, by the way. And and I know that this is now not politically correct to say, but it was a riot situation. You had people hitting people on both sides. That doesn't mean that it justifies anybody who, you know, if you're in the middle of a riot and you swing your bat and you hit somebody in the head and you kill them, which can happen, you're a murderer. You don't just get to say, well, you know, other people were doing it. No, this guy drove his vehicle into people. He killed somebody. He hurt a lot of other people. Okay, fine. He's facing second-degree murder charges, as he should. But to act like this was some complex terrorist attack representing an international terrorist agenda on the, along the lines of jihadism and the Islamic State and al-Qaeda is just insane. It's wildly intellectually dishonest. And it's so stupid. I mean, you had this thing in Charlottesville. Okay, if Charlottesville had happened and then this happened in a vacuum, I could understand why People who go on TV who are supposed to know about the world, they don't, but they're supposed to know about the world, maybe would make that mistake. But here's another way to look at this. It's also possible that the attacker in Spain, and I promise you we'll find out more about how he had been radicalized over a period, or they, if it's a couple of people, radical, I believe it is. Uh, we have one uh, who was killed in a shootout, a couple who have been taken into custody, uh, but 
We'll find out that there was a radicalization that occurred over time, that there was most likely surveillance of a target set in southern Spain, uh, in Barcelona, rather. Um, And so this is going to be exactly the playbook, the the jihadist terrorism playbook. This is going to come right out of it. A man of... Moroccan origin has already been taken into custody. I mean, you can write you can write this out yourself. You know what this is going to be. We're going to find out that he visited extremist websites. We're going to find out that you know he he blames Spain for its foreign policy. Or and I should know that people who are googling this before they go on TV, it seem like they know something about terrorism. It's like, oh well, the Madrid train bombings of two thousand and four. Okay, yeah, that was the last time there was a major terrorist attack in Spain. Uh, And it changed the course of an election there. And it was specifically in reference to uh, the the jihadists, rather, were targeting Spain because they were part of the coalition of the willing to attack Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Uh, And you had over 100 people killed in those in the Madrid train bombings. Um, But this is the first time that the Islamic State has ever claimed an attack on Spanish soil. Uh, Let's be clear. Spain has has a very strong non-interventionist streak, especially when it comes to dealing with jihadist terrorism. There are protests even about the Spanish assistance in the anti-ISIS mission going on. The Spanish people don't want it. They want no part of it. They don't want to be involved in the fighting. That So that Spain would be targeted specifically when it's not involved in the continuous airstrikes uh, against the Islamic State. It, it has taken a role in the coalition, but is not a, a particularly active combatant against ISIS. Just goes to show you that it's, it's not about a country's foreign policy anymore. They're hitting Spain, as I said, because it's Spain. But back to CNN and the analysis of maybe this is maybe this is tied to Charlottesville. Well, maybe it's also tied to the uh, attacks in Berlin, Germany, in uh, December of 2016. Nice, France, in July of 2016. In Israel, in Melbourne, in London, in Stockholm, in Montreal, in Glasgow. All vehicle attacks. All jihadists, by the way. Could it could it be that? Maybe it is in some way connected to Inspire magazine put out by Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula telling people, get yourself a, a powerful vehicle and mow people down. That's a great way to engage in jihad. That was back in, I think that was six or seven years ago now. But no, let's pretend that Char- let's pretend there's a connection to Charlottesville. That's how desperate they are to stay on the Charlottesville uh, news cycle. That a major terrorist attack with a lot of people killed in another city is is related to Charlottesville. Um, this is this would be like saying, uh, OK, there was just a let's just say there was just a, a big uh, a mass shooting. There was a school shooting that just happened. You know, one of the most horrific uh, events, news events that that anyone ever covers that that happens in this country. A school shooting has happened. And imagine some anchor goes on TV and says, well, you know, it's kind of like that. You know, there was a shooting and people died. So it's like that drug deal that went bad in, uh, you know, in, in Detroit where somebody was killed a couple of nights ago. One one has absolutely nothing to do with the, I mean, they both involve firearms and people dying. One has absolutely nothing to do with the other. And a person who went on TV and said that would rightly be mocked and ridiculed for being an idiot that shouldn't be on TV trying to explain the day's events to people. What the heck is CNN doing? 
Uh, well, it might be that there are connections to uh, to really. You, you think this jihadist in Barcelona was like, oh, you know, I, I wasn't going to mow people down with my car based on all the other incidents like that, where people who are of Muslim background radicalize, become jihadists, and do this in Europe, by the way, most notably. Uh, but but then when I saw the Charlottesville guy, then I really decided it was time to give this a, give this a shot. It's just it's so dumb, but it's so obvious too, isn't it? It's pathetic. It's to keep this in the news cycle. It's to bring up Charlottesville. It's so we can go back to discussing Charlottesville because whether whatever happened to uh, Mueller and Russia collusion, you'll know that we we've we've been absent any big bombshells about Trump and Russia collusion for a few days now. Uh, did all those reporters just stop finding out all this stuff about Russia? We, we have no leaks from the Mueller investigation to speak about? No, no. Because they thought that this Charlottesville Trump response was a more potent way to undermine and get at the administration. So now here we are. I am uh, astonished at how inept much of the media is at dealing particularly with terrorist attacks in fact, I, I think I've told the story here on the show before. I, I will never forget being at CNN after hours after the Nice attack, which I mentioned to you in Nice, France, on, on Bastille Day back in 2016. Bastille Day is a national holiday, storming the Bastille. Um, they lost 86 people that day along a be- in a beautiful beachfront town, celebratory mood, 86 people killed by a jihadist driving that truck. Although for a few days, they're like, well, we're not sure. Maybe, you know, maybe he had a fight with his girlfriend. We don't know if he's really a jihadist. Of course he was. But um, I went on TV that night at CNN and it was a bunch of other former government such and such as and me. Um, And one after another, the primary takeaway they had for the American people on that national news channel was that France doesn't do a good enough job of assimilating its... Muslim minority. That's the real takeaway. Not that we face a a challenge to civilization, not that this is an effort to undermine the West and to destroy our societies and to use our freedom and to use our liberty against us and to be part of a vanguard of conquest that is both violent and political in its machinations. Uh, no, no. It's that they don't do a good enough job assimilating there. And, and this is applauded, by the way. I'll just note before I go into break that uh, I was here in New, I was in uh, New York City maybe a few weeks after that. And a guy stopped me in Chelsea, which is a very liberal neighborhood here in, in New York. It's uh, often associated with, uh, with the gay rights movement. It has a very uh, large, uh, large gay, gay community. And a guy came up to me. Uh, with, I, I believe it was his uh, his husband, because uh, they talked to me for a little bit. And, you know, they just sort of came out and said, you know, we saw you, we saw you on TV and um, just wanted to say that we were so happy that somebody, you know, this, this is, Chelsea tends to be a liberal Democrat neighborhood, right? And these two guys came up and they said, we saw you and we just thought you were great. Because you said, why can't we focus on the terrorists? Why can't we focus on the jihadists? Why, why is this about how France, which is a wonderful country, doesn't do a good enough job welcoming immigrants? I mean, well, what are they doing in France then? Uh, so it was just kind of nice. And by the way, I'm, I'm 
willing to bet these guys didn't agree with me on a whole lot else, but they agreed with me on that one. All right, I, I know we got a lot of lines, uh, a lot of lines lit up here, and uh, we'll go into um, we'll go into a break. We'll come back. We'll talk about this and also the monuments battle and a lot of other. Things. Every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book rewritten. Every picture has been repainted. Every statue and street building has been renamed. Every date has been altered. And the process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. That's George Orwell or uh, Eric Blair, before he took up his pen name, uh, writing in 1984, which, as I've told you, is, in my opinion, the most important English language uh, book written in the 20th century. Um, So you could certainly argue it's the most important book written in the 20th century. And it's about the actual erasing and rewriting of history in the dystopian future that he describes in 1984. Remember this line, every picture has been repainted, every statue and street building has been renamed, every date has been altered. Well, someone please do explain to me what we are to make of what's going on right now in this country. This is from just earlier today, quote, It was in the best interest of my city, Mayor Catherine Pugh said Wednesday, as she explained why she ordered Confederate monuments removed under the cover of darkness days after violence broke out during a rally against the removal of a a similar monument in neighboring Virginia. I said with the climate of this nation, Miss Pugh said later, that I think it's very important that we move quickly and quietly, with no immediate public notice, no fundraising, and no plan for a permanent location for the monuments once they had been excised, all things city officials once believed they would need, the mayor watched in the wee hours on Wednesday as contractors with cranes, protected by a contingent of police officers, lifted the monuments from their pedestals and rolled them away on flatbed trucks. The mayor has the right to protect her city. For me, the statues represented pain, and not only did I want to protect my city from any more of that pain, I also wanted to protect my city from any of the violence that was occurring around the nation. Uh, that's all reporting from the, from the New York Times on how... Monuments are being removed now just by fiat of local politicians using, of course, public funds and calling into effect police protection in the dead of night so that there's no discussion, no one sees it, and when they wake up, it's just gone. It's not there anymore. Although in this case, there were people celebrating at the empty or at the pedestals uh, with now empty space above them. Uh, to which Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson previously occupied. Uh, and 
now it is spray painted over with the phrase black lives matter that's where we are now people toppling and destroying statues and acts of vandalism encouraged by the press public officials after months of debate just deciding on a whim we're going to get rid of these statues encouraged by the press vandalism of public property with slogans like black lives matter celebrated by the press here we are where does it end where does it stop i'll revisit that question with you because remember when the president came out and said exactly that where does this stop what's next who's next what statues are next And who, when judged by contemporary morality, would not be perhaps worthy of, after the fact, erasure, uh, the erasing that occurs now, because of what they thought and did at the time. I know you have, many of you have thoughts on this, and I've seen, we've had the lines let up for the entirety of the show, every single phone line we've got here in the Freedom Hunt, so let me get to some of your calls here. Uh, let's take Madison in uh, North Carolina's WPTI. Hey, Madison. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. Thanks for, th- thanks for taking my call. Thank uh, you. Yeah, uh, the the monuments, um, where does it end? Um, you know, uh, Trump said that, and then, uh, what was it, yesterday, the pastor in South side chicago wanted to change the name of washington park um you know uh, i'm okay i'm okay with you know the 1965 memorials that went up for the centennial i'm okay with those being taken down but there are a lot of there are a lot of people that that we we really need to be watching this and and keeping an eye on this i mean yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. This speak, where does this stop? And also, uh, what what are we to do about people who think that they now have the right to demand to demand right. that things come down that have any connection uh, any connection to people who were uh, involved with slavery, pro slavery, owned slaves, or or any number of other you know fought for the Confederacy. These are all areas where. I should note that it's not going to stop here, by the way. People who were any generals who were involved in uh, fighting against the Native Americans, they'll say they were part of a genocide against the Native Americans. Uh, They're going to demand, I would think, the renaming of some cities that are named for uh, named for Native American tribes. I mean, it's just this just there's no there is no end. Right. There's no outer limit to what the demands can be here. And it's just about the exercise of power. This doesn't bring us together as a society. It doesn't right historical wrongs. Um, this is now people making demands and taking action in the dead of night, as we see. Well, and it's it's extremely ironic because, what was it, last week or the week before, all of a sudden, you know, the, the Statue of Liberty is, you know, the poem on the Statue of Liberty is is immigration law, and we should follow that. Oh, yeah, it, now, it's, it, was, you know, it was sanctified. I mean, it was sacred, that poem. You Can't know, touch and, that. I mean, come on, come on, you know. I mean, okay, well, now is, is Lady Liberty? I mean, do we take her down now, you know? Is she going to get melted down or, or, or I just, 
Well, she is. I mean, you know, Lady Liberty is is cisgender. So in a sense, it's you know, she's it's not inclusive enough. I I mean, I don't know. You know, whatever you think right now, uh, Madison, is is the outer limit of of what is possible. It will change. And what sounds like hyperbole today, what sounds like an exaggeration right now about what the left is going to try and accomplish. Just give it time. We'll be there. Shields high, Madison. Thank you very much for the call. Uh, Let's take uh, Chris in Mississippi. WJDS. Hey, Chris. Hey, Buck. Thanks for taking my call. I enjoy the show a lot. I just wanted to start off by saying um, a lot of us do listen to you and enjoy the show. Appreciate all the research that you referenced earlier that you do put into the show and uh, listen to it online if I can't catch it uh, on the radio here locally. Thank you so much. um, I very much appreciate you focusing as much research and attention as you have to this monument issue. And you've kind of stolen a lot of my thunder and hit a lot of the points I wanted to make about how what you think is hyperbole and exaggeration is is something that will be coming to fruition um, soon. Uh, this this push, this mad push, this furied push in the last week or so that is uh, very similar to the tragic and awful killing that happened in Charleston by a very sick individual. It's just it's very similar to that uh, the events that happened then. Um, there have been there's been a uh, a chapel defaced on Duke's uh, campus. There's been a uh, Lincoln Lincoln Memorial was vandalized. A Lincoln bust was vandalized, and this stuff's going to continue in New Orleans specifically. I think the city spent about two million dollars plus city funds, firefighters, uh, city resources that were vitally needed in other areas like crime prevention infrastructure. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of that was focused on um, the monument removal of the four statues down there, and it is from friends and relatives that I have lived there. It has caused the city to be more uh, polarized and the atmosphere more caustic when it comes to racial um, r- racial issues in that city than it was before. Lastly, I just wanted to say that um, the monuments, and you're seeing this in polls that are starting to come out. Um, the monuments are, by the majority, are supported in the public uh, public area. Uh, most people do support them as symbols to uh, ancestors in the past that, that a vast majority of people are descended from. And people simply, instead of removing the statues and the plaques and references, would would be feel like it'd be more appropriate for plaques and memorials and statues to other things like victims of slavery or heroes of abolition to be erected uh, in the public sphere. But I appreciate the show. Thanks for everything that you do research-wise and uh, on the show in Shields High, my friend. Shields High, Chris. Thank you so much. Appreciate the kind call. I think that we have to get to the heart of the problem here, and the heart of the problem is the way in which many of us were taught American history. American history is not all glorious. George Washington was a slave owner, and we need to call slave owners out for what they are. Whether we think they were protecting American freedom or not, he wasn't protecting my freedom. I wasn't someone who my ancestors weren't deemed human beings to him. And so to me, I don't care if it's a George Washington statue or a Thomas Jefferson statue or a Robert E. Lee statue, they all need to come down. There you go. Washington statue, Jefferson statue, they all need to come down. That's Angela Rye on CNN. And for whatever it's worth, actually, I, I always, I, you know, on a, in a person-to-person sense, I've always kind of liked Angela. Uh, but she's saying it. Bring them bring down. 
Bring 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 the statues. What was it? Two days ago? Oh come on! He's not, no one's going to say take the Washingtons, and no one's going to say take Jefferson statue down. Those are founding fathers, you know. De- Declaration of Independence, Constitution, you know. First president, third president. Come on! Oh no, we're there. We're there. I'm not saying that everyone's there, but a, but a good amount of people believe that this is in fact uh, the way the way things should go. Uh, I should also note that you'll see. Uh, the, the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, formerly Warren Wilhelm, hello, the Kaiser is a here. Hello, guten tag. Auf Wiedersehen. He wants to do an overview of all of the, the different possibly offensive names of the buildings in New York. So Bill de Blasio is going to be looking at... Uh, uh, you know, wh- whether the Washington, you know, what do we have here in New York? He's doing a 90 day review here in New York City. I mean, this is it just you're going to see a lot of stuff. Washington Square Park. I guess we'll have to change the name to like the park. Um, even ones that people don't know very well. Uh, Delancey Street here in New York City, for those of you who know the city pretty well, is named for a guy who was a British colonial era judge and was a presiding judge over a what was what was said to be, although now people believe it may have been a fake, a uh, planned slave revolt. And at least according to uh, one book that you can get up on Amazon, one historian, uh, Delancey ordered not just the execution, but the burning alive of a number of slaves in that plot. So that's Delancey Street, big street here in New York City. I mean, you know, you're going to have a lot of streets and a lot of parks and a lot of things that have to get renamed. And how's that going to work, by the way? Just, I mean, literally, how's it going to work? Like, what, what are we going to call these things? Can't call them historical figures. I mean, are we going to really just call everything, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton and Teddy Kennedy Park? Is, is that what we're heading for? I mean, what are we going to do? Or we'll call things inan- inanimate objects. Keep in mind, a lot of inanimate objects are named for people. I, I don't know. Uh, I know we changed the name of uh, Mount McKinley to Denali, so there was that. Uh, Scott in North Carolina, WPTI. What's up, Scott? Hey, um, bear with me. I've got a cold. Um, I'm really upset about the press not telling the full story about the Durham Monument toppling that happened. Um, number one, I have seen numerous pictures in papers where they've got these tight shots of where the individual, I'm not going to say her name because I don't want to give her any more press, but she had a press conference and all these pictures are tight pictures of her face on TV and uh, in the newspapers. But if you go and look at online and look at the signage, all the people standing around them, they've got everything from cops and Klan go hand in hand drop the charges, smash white supremacy. Um, seems like there was one more, and I can't remember what it was. Well, what's at the bottom of the each of these signs is the Workers' Party um, organization, which is the Communist Workers' Party in the United States. And then if you go back and do a little more, more forensics, guess who was there the day the toppling of the statue came down? The same sign, same adage at the bottom of the signs, www.workers.org, no Trump, no KK, no racist USA. This is communist, and nobody in the mainstream press wants to talk about that. These are communists, uh, you know, rising up in the United States, and there's nothing bad about those folks. 
but they're going to dwell on all the other things they want to dwell on, and the bad guy that did kill the young lady up in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. But he wasn't. He's not the face of the conservative public today. Yeah, you can. As I was saying the other day, you can go around with hammer and sickle flags, and you can be a proponent of of communism openly in this country and be treated not just with, with respect, uh, but also as though you're some kind of intellectual part of an intellectual vanguard. I mean, you know the. The cultural left is so uh, is so entrenched on college campuses that if you want to talk about how you need to take Marx more seriously and you want to go to rallies where you discuss that, the fact that communism and specifically the Soviet Union with the hammer and sickle, that version of communism, killed many millions of people, that is uh, irrelevant, it seems, to the, the current discussion of it. And uh, I, thank you, Scott, for calling in. You know, I used to see these... Uh, these same signs and a lot of the same rhetoric, and it's forgotten now, but the whole Occupy Wall Street movement was a bringing together of, it, it, it united the loony left. I mean, you had all these different factions, and many of the slogans, I'm actually going to have to go into one of my, I think I have one on the uh, on an old laptop, and I'll see if I can find some. I'll post some up if I can on facebook.com uh, slash Buck Sexton. Uh, many of my um uh many of the of the uh, slogans that you see as part of black lives matter they were already out there and being used by this anti-police faction this back in 2011 2011 period this anti-police faction that was within occupy wall street and they were and 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 the black block which antifa is just black block with donald trump in office Right. Black Bloc has been around. I, I've been to Black Bloc protests to cover them in the past. Uh, none of this is new. None of this is surprising. They're wearing the gas mask, black clothing, head to toe, uh, throwing rocks, getting into it with police on the street, breaking, breaking windows, destroying property. They were a part of Occupy Wall Street, too. Uh, or, or they were you know, they were from w- within that movement. But the anti-police part. Uh, calling them murderers and racist murdering cops and all that. That was all that all existed in 2011. And the media ran with some of these uh, these stories, particularly Mike Brown and Ferguson and some others. And gay and, and then Black Lives Matter really became at the very forefront of progressive leftist policies. And now it's Black Lives Matter and Antifa, but really Antifa is sort of at the at the um, well. I mean, you can say either one of them, I suppose. But Antifa is getting a lot of attention right now. Uh, But these are not new. And the presence, and this is what made me think of this from our our last caller, the presence of communist communist signs and slogans in protests, I would see World Workers' Party signs. You know, hammer and sickle flags. I took photos of these guys. I would talk to them. What are you doing here? Well, you know, we think that the communist revolution is coming to America and and that's just totally fine with people somehow. We'll get into this in Antifa and more. Got some more calls lit up on the screens here. Buck Sexton with you now. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, really moving through a lot today on the show. Uh, don't forget to please subscribe to the podcast, Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes. Uh, you can listen to the show whenever you want that way. And also uh, com slash store to get some Team Buck gear. T-shirts. I got my T-shirt today. Check it out. Uh, Brett in Mississippi, WJDS. Hey, Brett. What's going on, Buck? Thank you for having me. Thank you. Just as good as a rush, in my opinion. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Very kind. 
Hey, I just wanted to talk to you a minute or two about, you know, the historical context, the things that t- kids are not getting taught in school about history, and especially the South. Uh, I live around two monuments in my local area, and back after the Civil War, people regarded the veterans as, just like we refer to as World War II veterans, you know, they were dying also. Communities that were devastated by the war that had been burned down and sacked by the Union soldiers down here would collect all the money and donate these monuments and statues to not commemorate slavery and all that, like the left like to believe, but to commemorate the people that didn't come home or they were uh, wounded and that sort of thing. Uh, I've got a great-great-grandfather that survived Shiloh, who I named my three-year-old after. He didn't own any slaves, didn't participate in all that, was not racist, and, you know, was just a good man. Uh, this is what that's a lot of people, you know, like the left and all that, the Democrats try to demonize the South and try to demonize, you know, the monuments and all these figures. But whenever, like what Trump said, you try to say, well, we need to get rid of Washington and all that. Well, it's okay because they were on the right side of history. But when you look at Lee and all these other people that actually had a positive side as well as some bad side, it's, it's just a double standard in that aspect. No, there's there's a lot of uh, nuances in the, in this discussion, and, and they get lost in the rush to be either politically correct or to be politically sanctimonious, right? Or to be uh, to be virtue signaling, whether you're an individual or a politician or somebody in the media. There's a lot of that going on. Yes, sir. Um, and I had a discussion with you know an acquaintance of mine about all this, and again, it's the same rhetoric that we keep hearing from the Democrats now who want to you know, get rid of George Washington and all that, you know, I'll, I tell people, you know, I've been to Dachau, I've seen the evils of the Holocaust and racism and slavery and all that. And when you try to compare that to what the left is doing, tearing down monuments, they try to say, well, you know, these other individuals are on the right side of history and they, they don't want to, they just end the discussion there. It's just, that's what it's all about. It's just a narrow-minded narrative. And just like we saw in New Orleans and just like Mississippi seeing, seeing with our state flag trying to be changed, it's all about political gain. It's all about the politicians making money. It's what it's all about. I hear you, Brett. Thank you for calling in, man. Shields high. Uh, speaking about uh, Antifa, which I was before, this is the way the media talks about this group that is dressed in all black, wearing masks, engaging in violence, shutting down speech. Oh, and as an aside, a lot of talking about a lot of talk about the battle over free speech coming up in the uh, third hour of the show today, uh, including how there's pressure on the ACLU to abandon the notion of, of free speech as free speech, that hate speech should not be covered, that speech should be assigned different privileges based upon the race of the speaker as a matter of law, everybody. That's happening right now. That is an ongoing debate. There are people who are pushing, actively pushing for that. So we'll talk about that in the third hour. But back to uh, Antifa. You know, they are the the tip of the anti-speech spear right now. And this is the way they're talked about on at least some of the cable channels out there. Six. On the one side, you have hate-filled people who, who, who want to eliminate people because of what they believe or what they look like. On the other side, you have people who don't agree with that viewpoint. That is not a reasonable argument. You had a group on one side that was bad, and you had a group on the other side that was also very violent. Sometimes good guys get hurt fighting the villains. There are not two sides in this. There are hideous hateful enemies yeah. of america enemies of freedom and and there were people exercising their free speech 
You had a group, you had a group on the other side that came charging in without a permit and they were very, very violent. There was no other side. There, there was no other bad side in this. There was, there was so that we, we all agree Nazis bad. The Antifa is, is not bad. Now, Antifa may not, and, and I don't think it did, represent all of the counter-protesters. I think there were some protesters there, but there was also Antifa there. It was a riot. I've seen the footage. There's, there's really no debating this. There, there were people punching, kicking, hitting with sticks, throwing rocks. It was, um, it was a mess. And what's this? Why is it okay for the, you know, the press is always, oh, Trump, li- Trump lies. He lied about this. He lied about that. Why is Trump lying? What's with this uh, this double standard? Why are they allowed to lie about Antifa's violence and role in what happened in Charlottesville? No one is defending, well, no normal, reasonable person is defending anybody, uh, any of the Nazis. But what's with defending Antifa? Antifa is being held up as heroes. That's what I said. The, the surprise of the week, really, is that the left is not just saying, you know, Nazis bad. You don't denounce Nazis enough. You must be a Nazi. And, you know, that was all to be expected. But Antifa are somehow heroic? Well, what is this? Where did this come from? Uh, you have uh, Professor Eric, uh, Michael Eric Dyson of Georgetown University said the following. The people that we claim, Black Lives Matter, the Antifa movement, and so on, are interested in preserving the fabric of America. Antifa is interested in preserving the fabric. Let's be very clear. Antifa wants to rip apart the fabric of America. Antifa does not believe in free speech. Just does, does not. Full stop. And also thinks that the president of the United States is a fascist. Seems to believe that the president is a fascist and therefore his supporters are fascists. And what? look, this takes you into some pretty scary territory. What is justifiable? Let's assume what they all say is true, that Trump is a fascist and that this is a fascistic movement and the people that vote for him and support him are somehow all part of that. What is justifiable? What lengths are they morally, what lengths are morally acceptable to go to in a in a situation where you have a the rise of a fascist movement in America. Do they want to answer this question? Does the left want to give us an answer as to this? Or do they just prefer to call him a fascist but act like maybe he's not? Maybe he's not really a fascist. Well, then why are you saying that? It's quite an accusation. It's quite an allegation. Um, and and this is this is getting heated. Oh, I see Kate... Baldwin over at CNN and Virginia Senate candidate Corey Stewart got into it over Antifa. I haven't even I'm learning. I'm hearing about this exchange when you did, too. Let's let's hear what they had to say. Ten. Either CNN, the mainstream media or any Democratic politician has come out and not even establishment Republicans have come out and condemned the far left group Antifa. Uh, which has been espousing why violence think, and attacking Why people. do you think that is, Corey? Maybe, is it possible? Because they're afraid. No, is they're it afraid. possible? Is it possible because establishment because Republicans are afraid died? of being labeled by CNN as racist no, no. and bigots, and they know uh, that that's exactly what you're going to that, do, and there's only a few of us who are going to stand up to you. Where's the condemnation of Antifa? A far left where is your group condemnation that of the, violence. Where is your condemnation of, of, of the right? Who are, of, I've, already, of the I've, already, right? I've already condemned it, and by the way, so has every other Republican under the sun. What he says there is true, but notice his initial point. 
people are scared. They don't want to be called racist. And that has such an effect on the way Republicans react to this, particularly Republican politicians, but also people in the media. They're just scared. And they have reason to be scared because they will get them fired. They will ruin their they will ruin their lives. They'll ruin their jobs. Not for being racist, just for being insufficiently animated in their hatred towards racism. It is like a North Korea standard. You can't just say, yeah, I praise the dear leader. It's, I praise the dear leader and he's amazing and anything for him and, you know, I'll give him a back rub if I see him. And he's, you know, you can never do enough. It's never enough. But where are the condemnations of, of Antifa? And another point, not to take us back to the monument thing again. Well, why not, actually? It's my show. I can do whatever I want, right? Let's go back to the monument thing for a second. All these politicians now, you know, the Nancy Pelosi, and the monuments. You get all these politicians out there that are grandstanding on this. You know, you, you had President Obama eight years where was the big movement to take? Did they just they just discovered these monuments now? Nancy Pelosi is just like, hey, there's some Confederate monuments. I mean, she just found this stuff now. It wasn't there before. No. Oh, I see. Trump is president, so now now those monuments are scary. But before they were, what they were okay. You know that that uh, that memorial in in Baltimore that came down in the middle of the night. It, it just started frightening people now. Now, I know people will say, oh, no, but this is, you know, progress is always feels sudden, Buck. And uh, this is not a new debate. This is not a new issue. And there's clearly greater political political potency in this moment right now for the Democrats by doing all of these things while there is, in fact, a Republican president in the White House because it goes towards the atmosphere of, see, we, we need to have news stories and have discussions all about combating racism because Trump. That's what they really want this to be about. Um, I, I would look, I'm hoping that Trump really pushes more on the issue of uh, uh, having the DOJ look into affirmative action and, and check out what happens for Asian Americans applying to schools and that's an, that's an argument that the left is going to have a very, that's a place they're going to have a very hard time winning. Uh, they'd much rather have people taking uh, photos of themselves spitting on statues that most people ignore, don't really know about, don't really care about. Um, and as I was saying, what are really the, the benefits of, of doing this at this point? What does it go to show us? And if we take the left's current line that seems to be growing in popularity, that you know, Washington and Jefferson and what we really are going to repudiate a, a big chunk of U.S. history. Well, what are we going to do? Who's what are we going to name things after? What becomes what's the American story? What is the American founding? If we can't celebrate Washington and Jefferson and a whole bunch of others, by the way, what what happens then? I don't have any answers for you. I'm really asking the question. I just think that this is going to uh, continue to get a lot of attention politically. All right. Um, We will, like I said, big discussion of uh, free speech specifically and what it means in the private sector and what it means for the government, the public sector, uh, and how we should, everyone should be on notice right now because today it's about silencing Nazis. Which, sure, okay, I hate Nazis, you hate Nazis. If Nazis are silenced, we don't really pay much attention to it other than to say, great. Uh, But what they do to Nazis, 
keep in mind, they're going to want to do to just conservatives because they think that con- the, the difference now between conservatism and Nazism is, well, actually here, here's Jim Acosta of CNN, senior political correspondent. No, I think we saw the president's true colors today, and, and I'm not sure they were red, white, and blue. How the White House could put out talking points uh, saying that the president was in the right here is just, it's baffling, it's strange. And But they are right in one respect. He has united the country against the views that he espoused today, which were right there on the edge of white nationalism. There you go. Senior political correspondent. The president's right on the president himself is right on the edge of white nationalism. Okay. By the way, next week he's gonna go back to being a journalist who's nonpartisan and, and unbiased, right? That's that's what we're supposed to think. That that's it's cute how that's supposed to work, isn't it? Um but yes, we'll get into that and much more. Uh well, there has been a this thought in the Democratic caucus that the president will hang himself, and he's certainly doing a real good job of it, and that we should just let him do that. Uh, I have been tempted to introduce an impeachment resolution to today announce that I will be introducing my own impeachment resolution. I had introduced, along with 29 other Democrats, a resolution of no confidence back in July that listed about 85 articles that the of actions the president had taken that we found uh, reprehensible. There you have uh, Democrat Steve Cohen of Tennessee saying that he can't wait for Trump to, quote, hang himself, end quote, as he puts forward an impeachment resolution. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to I would ask the question. First of all, if, can you imagine with any previous president, if a uh, a member of the of the uh, other political party referred to the president, quote, hanging himself? I mean, just let let that one sit for a moment. And I, I know that he, I think he was, look, he was using it as a figure of speech, but the double standard is still very much there, which is that, you know, a figure of speech. I, I wish that everybody could say, well, no, it was a figure of speech when they really meant it to be one. But in certain contexts, doesn't matter if it's a figure of speech. You're, you're in a whole bunch of trouble, uh, at least if you're a Republican. So there's that. But also, I was going to say, impeachment for, impeachment for what? I guess it doesn't even doesn't even matter. It's just about impeaching Trump because they hate him. So they're going to go for that somehow. Um, one thing I didn't get a chance to mention, I just want to take a, a moment to, I am b- bouncing around here uh, with different topics, but the press is much more uh, favorable towards uh, Antifa than any sane person would be, but they agree with Antifa a lot because they ultimately agree that with Antifa that there needs to be a radical political movement to oppose Trump's radicalism in this country. That's what they think. That's what this Antifa, remember, anti-fascism. I mean, fascism. You know, we're talking about, like, they're referring to, like, World War II fascism, people going to death camps and as though somehow there's an equivalency with the Trump administration. It's just nonsense from some other dimension. I mean, it's just crazy. But the press is favorable towards Antifa, even though, and this was really underreported, and that's why I want to take a moment to to note it for all of you, even though there were journalists who were covering what happened in Charlottesville. They were there. And do you know which side attacked them, violently assaulted them? Antifa. Why wasn't that? You would think that other journalists would be a bit more upset about their fellow journalists getting attacked. I mean, punched, you know, bloodied 
in the course of their work for doing their work and uh, punched one of them in the face. And they've now come out. This is this is confirmed. Punched a journalist in the face, kicked the camera when it fell on the ground. Two journalists were assaulted um, by by Antifa. But they won't say they'll say two counter protesters. No, these these were Antifa people that that attacked journalists. That's how political this is for journalists that they will allow their own to get physically abused and assaulted with very little by way of outrage, very little coverage of it. How many of you even knew that? I, I had to look around to find this, that you were journalists getting punched in the face by the, quote, Antifa group that's there to, to stand up against fascism and Nazis. Why are they punching journalists in the face? Oh, because they are self-righteous, babyish radicals posing as revolutionaries when, in point of fact, they're cowards who need to move around in packs like some roaming mob. And it's not just Nazis they attack everybody. They attack mainstream conservatives. They've done it in city after city across the country. And journalists are such cowards when it comes to standing up to Antifa that they don't even make so much as a peep when Antifa goes after journalists. Free speech debate coming up. If you're drowning in IRS debt and can't afford to pay, then you need to take advantage of special IRS tax programs that are available and free yourself from IRS collection efforts once and for all. Due to the financial hardship consumers are facing during the decline in the U.S. economy, the Internal Revenue Service... So in my business team, uh, and, and welcome back, thanks for being here, one of the great things about the era in which we live is that you can... Uh, communicate directly with people all the time who are watching, reading, listening, and that's great. And with those of you out there who send me Facebook messages or tweet at me, I really appreciate it. It adds so much to what I do here, and it's great. I will say, however, that I, I have been on the other side of this, most notably at CNN, where I, I was uh, essentially called uh, an uglier version of Mrs. Doubtfire, uh, Jabba the Hutt with a toupee. I mean, you name it. I, I, they, the, the more nasty and, and sometimes creative and almost humorous, but not nice, uh, they could be, they were happier with that, right? They were trying to always, when I, when I come off air doing a hit, I would all of a sudden be told that, you know, I was the, I was like the, I look like, like something that had, you know, gone out of a toxic waste dump and, and if i ever had a a collar that got came above my uh, jacket for a second or if my tie was a little askew which those of you who know me knows is kind of a buck thing that happens sometimes i'm an askew tie kind of guy uh i i would not be reminded gently i'd be told you look like an idiot you're such an idiot you're so dumb you know whenever i go on cnn and it, you just wonder sometimes who, who are these savages you know who are these imbeciles who are sitting at home or wherever they are and you know it'd be one thing if i were trying to be a, an underwear model or or i was you know pretending to be like the doseki's most interesting uh man in the world or whatever but you know i'm just a guy who's talking about politics and policy on tv and trying to look like i'm professional when i'm doing it but you know, I am, I am well aware of my limitations, and it was just so unnecessary and nasty. Anyway, I, I've occasionally gotten nastier than that, uh, but not really, I uh, haven't gotten much in the way of explicit 
death threats. Uh, and it just really bothers me to see what happened here to Ebony Williams over at Fox News. So she spoke out about, and she, by the way, for those who are wondering, is uh, very well liked and very highly regarded by people who are in, in the industry, in the business. She's nice to me when I see her. Uh, she is, spoke out about Fox, I mean, about uh, Trump, and was critical of what happened uh, or what Trump did after Charlottesville. And she said that, you know, she, she looked, she berated him. There's no way around it. Um, but then people started getting uh, so crazy that they were, by the way, she's an independent. I mean, not that that even matters, but she's not some left wing Antifa apologist or something. And people were, uh, people are threatening her. I mean, they're making death threats uh, about uh, at her. And of course, uh, it's nice to see, you know, Sean Hannity, who understands the sway that he has on the right. Sean stepped in publicly and was like, everyone needs to like stop with any nonsense about threatening Ebony. And, and I think that because he has so much credibility on the right, people will, some people perhaps will you know, step back from being nasty, never mind death threats, which are actually illegal. I think some people forget that using an Internet uh, enabled device across state lines, making a death threat. You actually get in a lot of trouble for that. But this is something that now we I feel like it needs to almost be taught in school or it needs to be at a younger age. You don't mock and threaten and harass people that you see on TV or that you disagree with or whatever, uh, just because you can. And you certainly don't make death threats against anybody. As I was saying, it's a, it's an issue of, of law. I mean, that's actually illegal. But it is so very disgraceful that there are those out there who disagree with someone's politics and then try to make them fearful for their safety. Uh, and and I know that and at some point in time, this will this will happen to me too. And it's one of those things that in this business you just accept that if you are doing enough and are, are getting big enough, there are going to be people who come after you in that way and, and who actually threaten your, your safety. But anyway, uh, all the support, thoughts and prayers possible to Ebony Williams over at Fox. And it's just, you know, some people, it's just like they want to ruin the Internet. You know, that's what, that's what these these trolls and those who threaten people and everything, they're just ruining the Internet for everybody. Uh, all right. Um, we're going to talk a bit about uh, free speech issues in some depth here, both from the private sector and government sector side. So uh, stay with me. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton back with you now, team. Corporate America is taking a stand against white supremacists. That's the news story that you're seeing now getting some traction across the Web. And it's let, let me give you some of the details. But I also want to just start by saying that this is not going to be a thing that only happens this one time. It's not just about opposition to Nazis. They're not only going to use this as an opportunity to stand against what is actual hate and white nationalists. This usage of corporate muscle as a form of policing speech, specifically for Internet platforms that are essential now, to getting one's message out there, this will be used again. This is uh, a continuation of the problem that we're seeing on the, on the left, that they assume that they will always be the ones policing the speech, and so they have no problem with the concept 
of policing speech. They assume that, quote, marginalized communities will always be protected by those doing the censoring, but and, and as a result of that, they're fine with censorship. You see, it's a very short-term thinking, but it allows for the pursuit and the acquisition of political power, because if you control the discussion, you control the decision-making. If you control speech, you control perception. So that brings me to this piece in the Washington Post about companies that are booting the alt-right white supremacist site called the Daily Stormer. Uber, the vehicle uh, ride-sharing company, that's gotten rid of them. Google has kicked them off. PayPal has kicked them off. Uh, And their web hosting server, uh, GoDaddy, got rid of them because of, quote, an article disparaging a woman who was killed while protesting the Unite the Right rally, end quote. So GoDaddy's gotten rid of them. Their website has come down. Uh, There are other companies that are saying they're going to speak out about this. Um, You had uh, WordPress kicking Vanguard America, which is another white supremacist group, off. Now, these are all right now, understandably, uh, actions that are not going to get a lot of pushback because white supremacists are terrible. As I said yesterday, they're just above child molester and necrophiliac. I mean, I don't know what else you'd put in that category of hated across society in quite the same way, but white supremacists, I mean, they're, they're right next to the Westboro Baptist Church. I mean, these are terrible people, okay? So this is, though, when you see, when it comes to free speech and rule of law, what are your principles? It's so easy to stand up and say, oh, I, I believe in free speech as it relates to and some issue of either, you know, some esoteric political issue or something that it doesn't get passions particularly high. But the, the hard case to make is the, is the protection of the speech that no one wants to hear. And we're, I'm going to talk to you shortly about how there's an effort now to change the law around free speech that the left is just openly embracing. I mean, they're, they are embracing censorship. They are embracing a... Uh, differentiation of speech rights based upon the identity of the speaker. Very, very troubling stuff. Uh, But in the private sector, which is what we're talking about right now, these are private companies. GoDaddy, Uber, Google. Google, as we know, you can't write a memo at Google without getting fired that addresses some issues of diversity and sensitivity. So we are now what? Going to assume that it's only the Daily Stormers and the white supremacists and white nationalists of the world who are going to have this problem? We really think that the, the only groups that are going to get kicked off of these various... What, what about pro-life groups? Do you, you think that they won't necessarily have... What about groups that say that, for example, what about someone like me who will openly state that a policy of aborting babies who have a possibility a likelihood of being born with Down syndrome is eugenics. A- am, I, is that, well, am I triggering? Is that beyond the pale? Could I lose my web hosting privileges? Could I be kicked off of all these different platforms? Now, in the private sector, it's different, right? It's different because what you have are entities that are under the control of individuals that are operating as businesses 
that can make distinctions that aren't about, you know, you can get fired from your job for saying that your boss is a jerk. You can claim First Amendment protection, but the First Amendment only protects you from the government. And as I said, the left is trying to change that, too. But the First Amendment only protects you from what government action is out there. And there is a much stronger case to be made on campus than a lot of leftists and progressives understand because college campuses get money from the federal government. So they're even even private ones. This is what a lot of people don't understand. But for private uh, private companies or even publicly held companies, but that are still private entities, they're not government entities, they have much more leeway. And this is one of the reasons I was so concerned about Google. And I mentioned this to you earlier in the week. They have vast influence on the national conversation on a whole bunch of issues, a tremendous ability to sway the conversation, to silence in secret, I should note. All they have to do is bury search results, and now all of a sudden no one sees that article that makes a great argument against some progressive shibboleth, right? All they have to do is take your website down, and then other people will think, well, I can't have a conservative you know, right-wing website. Now, I understand, to bring it back to what's happened here, white supremacists are on the very, very fringe. They are the worst. Their ideas are hateful. Uh, they espouse evil principles and evil action. I, I, I'm with all that. And it annoys me at some level that we live in a society where the Democrats are so politicizing on all these issues uh, that, and, they, and they exploit them so much that even I have to sit here with you, my beloved audience, and say, well, I mean, you know, white supremacists are bad. You know I hate white supremacists, and I know you hate white supremacists, so there's, you know, why do we have to waste the time? But if some lefty out there is listening to the show and they cut it and I don't, I don't establish repeatedly where I am, you know, then all of a sudden they come after me or they come after the company that... Uh, that I work for, or, you know, this is just, this is the way it is right now. So what, my, what I'm raising the alarm about is not that, oh, look, they're, uh, look, I'm a, I'm a free speech absolutist when it comes to companies, so they can't punish the Daily Stormer, they can't kick white nationalists off their platforms. No, uh, they are, they are, they can do those things. I want everyone to understand that, especially with these major internet companies, they're not public utilities. And these large public companies that we see right now establishing how much they hate white supremacy, there are also large companies that were singling out uh, North Carolina for its bathroom law about transgender usage and punishing the state for that. Not neo-Nazism, not you know, right-wing, extremist, fascist, whatever stuff they want to say. No, no. Private companies were taking a stand and financially punishing a state and any individuals in the state that they could through this for, think, for, for telling people that, you know, if you're a male and you think you're a woman, you can't use a, ba- you can't use a public accommodation bathroom with a 12-year-old girl. That's just not the way this is going to go. They punish people for that. So understand that this power that they are marshalling for what is an obvious case of society denouncing and, and, and repudiating, uh, you know, th- this, is, this is an extreme example because you're dealing with extremists here, 
But this same phenomenon of private companies that are punishing thoughts and ideas and suppressing them and expelling them, it's not just going to be Nazis, everybody. We've already seen it. So we should, we should watch this and understand that the political fight that's playing out right now will have very real economic and financial implications, not just for the worst of the worst, not just for the neo-Nazis out there, all, you know, 500 of them in this country or whatever it is, but it will be expanded as well to include anti-diversity speech or speech that questions affirmative action or speech that questions a, quote, woman's right to choose, i.e. have an abortion. They will expand this. And this is going to, this is the way they restore, by the way, the information advantage that the left enjoyed via the media for a few decades before conservative media via talk radio, which is what you're listening to now, and Fox News and a few other avenues, the internet most notably, uh, finally had a voice in. If they can control these internet platforms and hosting servers and major internet super companies, then they can restore that um, information dissemination and, and suppression advantage that they had in the past. So this is a very, very, very important issue. Don't think for a second that it's just going to be Nazis that get kicked off of their website and WordPress. No one's going to stand up and defend Nazis. No one's going to shed a tear because Daily Stormer lost its website. That's not the point. The point is that the same tactics and power that is being used here to punish neo-Nazis has already been and will continue to be used to go after mainstream conservative viewpoints. Because one of the big efforts that is underway right now with Antifa and the progressive left is to convince people that mainstream conservatism, that Donald Trump and Trumpism, whether you think those things are related or not, conservatism and Trumpism, that those are ideas, those are political movements that are in fact fascist. And if they convince enough people that there is a, there are fascist underpinnings or a fascistic foundation for these conservative beliefs, then yeah, you are going to have mainstream conservatives uh, under assault. You are going to have these companies punishing them. And I should just one more thing I, I want to note here in this discussion. You have this point of view that they should be allowed to do what they want, meaning the private companies here, the Facebooks, the Ubers, the WordPress, the GoDaddy. But at the same time, currently, there are a lot of places in law, in federal law, where companies are not allowed to discriminate. But it's always about chosen identity groups. It's always about uh, either ethnic, or racial, gender, gender identity, uh, any number of different categorizations where you don't just get to say, I have a private business, so I'm going to discriminate. Or I, and so there are these laws in place. So because there are these laws that are already in place, how are we to think about a country in which the only uh, acceptable prejudice based on employment law and based on federal regulations about hiring and everything else is against white males or against Christians or against, uh, you know, conservatives, Republicans. 
why should they be left out? Why is it that you should be able to be protected from firing because you are a transgender individual, for example, which is a psychological, it's a psychological position. It's a choice, right? It's a state of mind, but not for your closely held, let's say, uh, Catholic beliefs. So, you know, if, if you're a Catholic and you won't engage in certain behaviors based on your employer, you know, and, and they decide to fire you, are, are you going to be protected? Yes or no? If you're a Catholic company that only wants to hire people who believe in traditional marriage and uh, believe in pro-life causes, and you know, are, are you allowed to only hire people that agree with you? Or, you know, this is the reality of the modern hiring environment and, and immigration, I mean, not immigration, and, uh, and employment law. And uh, we need to keep an eye on how this is changing. And th- this has dramatic effects on the culture. All right, we'll uh, hit a quick break here. When I come back, I want to talk to you about how the ACLU might be getting a little weak on the whole notion of protecting speech. Stay with me. What does the progressive left think of the First Amendment? Let me get a little more specific. What do modern intellectual progressives think about free speech? Do they believe in free speech? You have seen, as part of the Antifa movement across the country, numerous people, uh, countless people at this point, I mean, who knows, thousands, tens of thousands, who believe that hate speech is to be met with force, to be met with violence. And you even have people going on TV, most notably Chris Cuomo, Hey, uh, you know, like uh, the First Amendment, it's like a thing. And yeah, he's a lawyer, by the way, over at CNN, uh, who doesn't who doesn't think that hate speech is protected under the First Amendment. These people have forgotten a Supreme Court case that dealt specifically with the issue, not just of hate speech, but Nazis in Skokie, Illinois. Uh, And it was neo-Nazis who were going to be marching through or uh, they were. They were the uh, technically the National Socialist Party of America. So uh, they were Nazis. They wanted in 1977 to march through a community in Skokie, Illinois, in which uh, about a fifth or uh, 20 percent or so of residents was either a Holocaust survivor or a direct relative of one. And the ACLU, in fact, challenged uh, the injunction that was put in place by a court and had to do whether this fell under fighting words. That's the, that was the, the legal term of art at the time. So the Supreme Court took that up, and sure enough, the Supreme Court held that they could, in fact, march. So this, is, this has been long since settled, that hateful speech, bad speech, mean speech, is free speech, is covered under free speech, but this has been eroded recently on campus by this Antifa group and also by people in the media who seem to think that hate speech is outside the realm of what is protected under the First Amendment. But it's even more than that now because you have pressure on the ACLU, which is a leftist legal group, as we all know, and it certainly treats Christians and Muslims differently. But traditionally, the ACLU has been near absolutist in what it is willing to defend in terms of speech. But now the ACLU is coming under direct assault from the left because 
the intersectionality view of American society, in essence, that everything in America comes down to your class, your race, your gender, and you cannot separate anything going on of any importance from those issues, the intersectionality approach, which dominates progressive ideology now, which is the id, it is the center, the cortex of the Democratic Party at this point, identity, politics, intersectionality, that is now coming into conflict with what had been the ACLU's longstanding policy of being uh, neutral when it comes to speech content and defending speech in almost all cases, really. I mean, they, they were pretty close to absolutists on this. And sure enough, in the New York Times, you have a professor, no, no shock there, in critical race studies at UCLA School of Law, which uh, UCLA Law School is a great school, that they have someone who is a critical race studies scholar is just indicative of how wasted many of our academic resources currently are. Uh, but this woman, Kaysu Park is her name, uh, has written the following. For marginalized communities, this is in the New York Times, everybody, okay? This is in the biggest, one of the biggest newspapers in the country. Uh, for marginalized communities, the power of expression is impoverished for reasons that have little to do with the First Amendment. Numerous other factors in the public sphere chill their voices but amplify others. Most obviously, the power of speech remains proportional to wealth in this country, despite the growth of social media. When the Supreme Court did consider the impact of money on speech in Citizens United, it enabled corporations to translate wealth into direct political power. The ACLU wrongly supported this devastating ruling on First Amendment grounds. Uh, this is... So uh, that's the end of the quote there. Uh, this is a an op-ed in which a person who is a professor is writing that because of imbalances in society, we also have to now police imbalances in speech. And this is effectively affirmative action for free speech and the laws that protect it. So there are groups, there are minority groups that need uh, additional amplification of their voices. And so this has to be, as a function of law now, this has to be a an issue where you can't just say free speech is free speech. It has to be, well, the speech of a black person should be elevated or uh, evaluated differently than the speech of a white male, than the speech of a Latino, than the speech of a uh, and you just go down the line of all and Latino versus white male and women versus man and transgender versus heterosexual. And you just you go down the whole. I don't know. Transgender and heterosexual. Those are actually different categorizations. Right. I'm always told this uh, that tra or I read this that transgender does not mean uh, a person is attracted to one sex or the other. It's, it's their gender identity and a discussion for another time. Uh, but here's what this op-ed continues with. The ACLU has demonstrated that it knows how to think about other rights in a broader context. It vigorously defends the consideration of race in university admissions, for example, even as conservative challengers insist on a colorblind notion of the right to equal protection. So, so this author, this op-ed writer here, 
is explicitly uh, advocating for what I was just saying, which is an understanding of the First Amendment that is a, an extension of the thinking of affirmative action. So there will be imbalances based on, there will be legal distinctions made about the imbalances between individuals and their, quote, power that will have to be regulated when we talk about free speech. This is really troubling. But, you know, it shows you how quickly the left goes from, oh, we just want to regulate the worst kinds of speech on campus. Oh, we just want to prevent speech that triggers or that creates an unsafe space, or to now it's, well, actually, the law needs to recognize that some people are in, or some people are privileged in society over others, and so that should be uh, affecting how free speech rights are protected or not. By the way, how this would even work, I don't know, except what it is, is an excuse for censorship of Predominantly, what it would be is censorship of white males, conservatives, people with unpopular, based on progressive standards, unpopular opinions, and it would be a legal tool to do that. This is just an excuse for censorship. This is racial grievance and victimology as the basis for making decisions about who gets to say what and when and how through the law, I should note. And the ACLU is getting pressure on this. And I'm not sure they won't cave, by the way, because with the left, it's all about power and the narrative. And the moment right now feels ripe for the left to just pounce and eliminate speech. If we don't have free speech as a universal concept for all people in this country, if we start making distinctions, we are no longer a free country. That's not an overstatement. It is a fundamental freedom. We are no longer a free country if this woman writing this op-ed gets her way. Welcome back, Team Buck. You know, I got my Team Buck t-shirt today. Oh, yeah. Actually, I've got a, a few of them I, I had to put in my own order because, uh, you know, it all, it all goes to the Freedom Hut and Freedom Hut's uh, operating expenses. So I've got Team Buck t-shirts. I've got some Shields High. I've got Freedom Hut. And uh, I'm going to be posting some of that on social media. If you don't already, please do follow me on social media. You can do that on Facebook at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Same, just my name, Buck Sexton, on Twitter and also Instagram, uh, where I post photos of myself doing stuff, radio, TV, uh, cooking, and uh, with Miss Molly, if any of you are curious, like, who's Buck's girlfriend? Well, uh, if you follow me on Instagram, you'll certainly see. Uh, and I uh, also would really love it if you go to bucksexton.com slash store, which is where you can get all of the finest uh, Team Buck gear. Uh, speaking of, of photos of food, I posted one earlier today. I was very proud of this one. I made a, uh, a hash with diced sweet potato. So I had to get the diced sweet potato going. And then uh, I didn't have the chorizo handy, which I really wished I had. But I had diced sweet potato and uh, baked eggs and a side of bacon threw a little rosemary in there, used my cast iron, and really, I think, did a, did a fabulous job. I got to say, I'm really getting into cooking. You know, it's, it's funny. Uh, Winston Churchill was a painter. He was also well-known for being a, or should be better known, I think, for being a prolific writer. And while he was certainly of the aristocracy in the UK, born in Blenheim Palace, 
and one of my all-time favorite books, which I listed recently, I think, on a, on a little tweet I put out or Facebook post about favorite books, is by the professor emeritus at Wesleyan University, William Manchester, uh, and it's one of a three-volume series, although I don't think the third volume was ever finished because Manchester, I believe, passed away, called The Last Lion, about Churchill's early life. It's really the first phase of his life. Um, but if you get into the next book in the series, Alone, it talks about how Churchill later on moved to Chartwell, and he loved animals. You get some of his best all-time Churchill quotes, including that dogs— uh, I'm sorry. I, uh, yes, dogs look up to you, cats look down on you, but pigs look you right in the eye. He's just got some great stuff. He really loved animals, by the way. Uh, but he was a prolific author. He he really his father Randolph Churchill, uh, who was a, a syphilitic for one, which is rough. Uh, at least that's what it was. That's what's believed. Um, he was uh, not. He did not have a good relationship with with young Winston, and also was not good with the family finances. Jenny Churchill, Winston's uh, American mother, uh, was much closer to him and much more important in his life. But Winston had to write a lot to support his extravagant spending. You know, he. It is true that he liked a glass of champagne with breakfast. You know, Winston liked. Uh, to indulge, he probably would have enjoyed the sweet potato hash that I made myself this morning. But Churchill, especially in some of his uh, what he called black dog days, which was his reference to depression. I always think it's interesting, too, for those who don't uh, don't ever think about this. You have some of these great historical figures and we don't often hear about how they have in, uh, they have their own not just problems in life in terms of getting the positions they want or, you know, winning a battle, losing a battle, but they have depression. They have uh, emotional battles that they're fighting. And Churchill would refer to his black dog days. And one of the ways that he uh, dealt with black dog days, one of the ways that he uh, tried to manage his uh, battles with depression was through painting. And I actually have a book of just all of Churchill's paintings and I you know he was good I, I I don't know if it would be remarkable were it not for the man who is perhaps best remembered for helping to defeat the Nazi menace and bringing the U.S. into World War II and standing up to Hitler and some of the, the greatest speeches and most notable quotes in all history I believe Churchill after the Bible and Shakespeare is the third most quoted source in the English language uh, but for him, it was painting. That was his escape. Uh, these days, I, I feel like I'm looking for my own ways to uh, work on, I guess you'd call it a hobby, but I've never been much of a cook or a chef. I think chef might be too grandiose a term, but I've always loved food, as I'm sure many of you do too. And so cooking for me now is becoming a place where I am able to uh, have some escape that's constructive I'm getting a little better at it. You know, I'm, I'm working on my skills. I'm certainly uh, nothing to write home about yet, but I'm getting uh, better at it all the time. And I find myself uh, trying to experiment with new techniques. And uh, so Churchill had his watercolors. He had his painting at Chartwell, which was his uh, rather expensive and extravagant country house. Uh, and I have in my own little 
my new apartment here in New York City, which is certainly neither. It, it may be expensive for me. It's definitely not extravagant by anyone else's standards. Um, I am finding that having a kitchen where I can actually cook instead of a a kitchenette where all I have available to me is a one burner or two burner stoveette, if that's such a thing, uh, I find that cooking is a lot of fun. I think some of the next dishes I'm going to try, I really want to master, my breakfast food is phenomenal. I could make any of you listening a goat cheese, uh, a, a, a goat cheese English muffin breakfast sandwich uh, with, well, it's a scrambled eggs with goat cheese, of course, and a bit of chive and some hot sauce. And you'd be like, that's the best breakfast sandwich I've ever had. So I, I know what I'm doing on the breakfast side of things. I'm trying to expand a little bit beyond that. Uh, I've made some amazing steak because clearly the center of my diet is meat because America. I love America. And I love meat. Uh, but I'm working, I'm going to work on, that's right, reduction sauces. Mais oui, bien sûr, he's going to work on the... The au poivre for the steak au poivre. He's going to work on the beurre blanc sauce. White butter sauce. Gotta love anything butter sauce or cream sauce tends to get me excited. Not particularly good for you, but so delicious. So that's the next phase for me, doing reductions. Uh, I, I tend to, I, I've had some mistakes in the past on this. So anyway, I'll, I'll keep you updated on my cooking adventures. And maybe, uh, yeah, for me, I, I'd like to think of it as, as I strap on an, an apron and get there, get it behind the stove for myself and Molly this weekend, that I'm like Churchill with his painting. You know, I'm, I'm escaping the fight and the struggle of the day to day and spreading freedom and all the things I do here by searing some meat and roasting some Brussels sprouts and doing some of the other stuff I've got going. I hope you have your own way. Uh, I mentioned novels yesterday. I think novels are a fantastic escape I'm I've turned back after really my 20s spent entirely on nonfiction as I've told you I've started to read novels again and the great novels uh, the ones that everyone knows but very few people have actually read so uh, cooking in novels these days this is how I avoid getting too depressed at the state of the political conversation in this country uh, as always please do download the podcast Buck Sexton with America now on iTunes you can always listen on the iHeart app anywhere in the country as long as you have a connection, an internet connection or cell phone connection. So just download that iHeart app in case you're away from your radio signal and you want to listen to the show. And you can always listen, of course, on playback on demand from iTunes with the podcast, one of the beauties of the podcast. So uh, I feel like we're going to have a busy day here in the hut tomorrow, even though it's Friday because of what's gone on with the terrorism in Barcelona. So we'll have some news, I'm sure, to discuss and much more. Until then, team, uh, make sure you make some time for you and your family that doesn't involve, you know, Internet and TV and all that stuff. And I'll see you tomorrow night. Shields high.